I thought of this verse because in Paul's prayer to the Philippians, he says in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. God's word is truly a supernatural, powerful thing. The, the, its writing is so miraculous and it is so um, profound that truly we can never search it all. We can never study it hard enough or deep enough or long enough or, or you know, just lavish in the joy of all of it long enough that, w that we will ever grow tired or ever get enough. You can never go too far with God's work. This week when we did our homework, there was so much that you had to look at it. And quite honestly, almost any one of the points could st cause you to stop and just want to, you know, bask in the joy of it. Um, so as we go through what we're going to try to, you know, go through at 100 miles an hour again this morning, if whatever it is that, that you have on your heart, please be sure that you allow us to enjoy with you. I, I like what Paul says where he says, um, make my joy complete and join me in this. I urge you to come into this joy of loving God, serving God, living in the light of the truth of God, that all these things that, would be, that in fellowship together in this one spirit, it made me think of the first John passage, you know, um, these things that he wanted them to it, it, uh, join him in, in the fellowship, right, of the brethren. And so, our time together in studying God's word, this is what it's really all about. It's, it's coming together in community, sharing the joy of who God is in your personal life, but also digging out from his word, which is the foundation of truth upon which you can truly have that kind of joy. Apart from the true knowledge of God, and this is where he says, he wants their love to abound still more and more, but how in real knowledge and all discernment. And when we did our Proverbs uh, uh, cross-referencing, there was one of those verses that basically laid it out in exactly the same way. It talked about hu uh, the humility, but also it talked about the knowledge of God through the wisdom and the knowledge of God. All right, so this week, w what we want to do is real quickly go back and talk about the context again. What kind of literary work are we in? What is this work? It's, I'm sorry, say it again. Epistle. It's an epistle, a, a letter, okay? We're going to put that in English. It's a letter. And what kind of a letter? If you had to describe it to somebody, what kind of letter is this? Pardon? Okay, the, for, for one thing, we do see him giving thanks to them for all kinds of things. Can you think, think of some of the things that he's thanking them for? Okay, one of the things is thanking them for their financial uh, support to him. We're not quite there yet. That's more in Chapter 4 where he's going to expound on that. He does pick it up a little bit in, pardon? There you go. The participation in the gospel is another thing he thanks them for. In, in what way is it that they are participating with him in the gospel? Are there any hints to it in the book? Okay, for one thing, sending, for instance, Epaphrodites to help him, for instance, right? Also, Paul himself sending 
to them who? Timothy, right? So we see this engagement going on back and forth between them. So there's this participation through basically then not just financial, although Sarah is correct on that, but also through what? Prayer and this mutual edification of, of literally physical help, physical presence in the lives of one another. Good morning. Um, all right, so the, the, it's a letter of exhortation. Now, in this letter of exhortation, he gives a variety of instructions and um, even some warnings. We haven't quite got into some of those yet, right? So we see, uh, we see warning. I'm just going to put that on there because although it's small, we are going to get into it a little bit more later. But we mostly see instruction, right? Did you not see that he keeps telling them, I want you to do this, I want you to do this, I want you to do this? How, but in those instructions, those exhortations, there's one subject that keeps coming up over and over in this. Did you notice, did you notice what it is? And you should have because by now we've kind of honed in on it. That's it. It's the subject of rejoicing. Uh, in almost every one of his exhortations, he follows it up with some kind of a statement about him having joy, him um, desiring that they join with him in this joyful state. And what's interesting to me after chapter 1 is he wants them to be joyful even if what? Even if they're in the midst of suffering. Does he demonstrate this to them? Absolutely. So in his circumstance, where is he in chapter 1? Okay, he's in prison. And um, as he's in the midst of this possibility of this trial or whatever it is that's going on at that particular moment, what are the possibilities of the outcome for him? He might even die. That's pretty profound when you, when you consider. I mean, most of us, I don't think I have ever in my life had a scenario where I was literally putting my life on the line, that there was a possibility that I would be executed because of these uh, circumstances that had come against me. And we can certainly um, assume that in this case, we, that Paul is, very, is completely innocent in this. As a matter of fact, he tells us why he's in prison. Why was he? What was it that he's charged with doing? It has to do with the gospel itself, that he was therefore the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's under persecution specifically for his message about the gospel. And the, po the potential there is that he might die. And his demonstration to them is what? Rejoice all the more. I, and as a matter of fact, he speaks about two kinds of uh, ways that the gospel around him is being preached, right? What were the two ways that were going around? Okay. One was tr truthfulness. People were actually, what, when it came to the truthful part, he was excited because something about his scenario, his situation, his circumstance is causing others to actually be bolder, right? They're actually being braver, which is really pretty amazing, right? Then on the other hand, he spoke in chapter 1 about those who preached out of pretense. And when he speaks of that pretense, we talked about a possibility of some things that, that maybe it's just about, you know, when they're talking about Paul in a negative way, that possibly people are still hearing the gospel through that message, right? Um, I, I mean, that seems like a, the possibility. And we don't know beyond that what other scenarios might be, but we could just kind of guess about them. But either way, he's saying it doesn't matter to him, right? 
Because what does matter to him? That's right. That he, the co- and so then he concludes in chapter 1, verse 21, then concerning all that, then what? Whether he lives or dies, what? To me to live is Christ. So when we finished chapter 1, as you look at everything that's in there, and there's, there's kind of like a lot of, um, what's the right word? I don't want to call it noise because it's very valuable insights. But, but there's a lot of uh, circumstances, a lot of backdrop information being given as to what's going on and how it's going on and how he feels and how they feel and what their relationship is. But when you bring all this information down to basically one point, what did you draw out of chapter one was his major point. If you're going to rejoice in the Lord always, how are you going to be able to do that? That's right. If you have your focus upon Christ alone, if Christ is the, your focus of living, if he's the one you live for, he says, to me to live is Christ. Whether he lives or whether he dies, he does it unto the Lord. And so in chapter 1, then, we concluded that to live is Christ. Now, how you, how you title your chapter is up to you. There's, we talked um, when we did our first brush through on titling each of these chapters, all kinds of possibilities. And you can kind of just pick the one that seems to state it most clearly for, for you. My title is not the title. But this is my title. I have to go somewhere with it, right? So this is the title I chose for chapter 1, and that is that if you are going to rejoice in the Lord always, you're going to do it by living to Christ. If Christ is your focus and it doesn't matter what your circumstances, you live to Christ. So we see that basically in chapter 1 of Philippians. Then we moved um, in, in, in doing all this observing about the the warnings the instructions and kind of looking at the the information that how he's setting the cert, the historical setting of this book the the circumstances that are going on that key subject then of the book comes up for us which is to rejoice the second key uh word in this book is who jesus himself how many of us when we marked our pages saw how profound Jesus is listed throughout this. Now, it's not that in any other book Jesus is not ever key. He is always key, right? But in this book, it is really prevalent. When you start actually doing your marking, and that's that objective tool that we have as inductive Bible study students, if you will simply mark your page, if you just do your markings, when you're done, you pull back all of a sudden, you look at page after page after page in Philippians, and what's on the page? Jesus, 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 Jesus. That's why we love marking our, our text with the keywords that we pick. The reason you mark them is because it is an objective tool that helps you to actually see what is major. You don't go with what you feel or, or you know, what what kind of tickles your fancy that morning or maybe even emotionally what you get attached to, but rather you use these uh, skills or these tools of inductive Bible study to help you be objective in your observations. So that's the purpose of them. They're a little bit tedious to get done, but boy, are they valuable. So we see Jesus as as then is the major focus of this book, which also shows to you why I see in chapter 1 that the major subject in my title is Christ himself. This idea of rejoicing always, and how is he going to rejoice always? By living to who? 
Christ, living to Jesus, live, living unto him. And so that is your title for that one. Now, the other thing that we like to do in setting context is try to figure out the author's purpose for writing. Um, another way of kind of couching this, and it's just a slight nuance to it, and that is called the occasion. What's the occasion for the writing? What, what prompted Paul to write this book? We know what his major theme is. It's about rejoicing always. But what prompted him to want to write this letter to them? What made him have a feeling of, I need to write to these people? Well, the first, the first one we've kind of honed in on already, we saw that in chapter 1, verse 25, so I'm just going to remind you of what we've already discussed. But he spoke about, I'm going to live to Christ regardless, whether life or death. He says, I feel like I need to come to you, and I want to come to you, and I think it's God's will for me to come back to you. But even if I don't, whether I'm in present or not, either way, right, he wants them to continue on. He says in 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for what? For what purpose? What does it say in verse? There you go. For your progress and joy. In the faith. Now, meditate on that for one second and try to phrase that for me in your own wording. What is he actually saying to them? Okay, very good. Now, if he, if his if his um, heart is that he needs to stay and the reason he feels that he needs to stay and come and return back to them, maybe he even feels that the Lord has somehow impressed on him, he will return to them. But he's doing it because he's, number one, he wants their progress in the faith, which means he wants to see them grow, correct? Now, did we not already see that in his prayer? Back in the prayer, he says, it, he says I pray that you abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that, right, so that you will approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. So he, he in, in the uh, chapter 1, we see how he actually emphasizes what it is that's really prompting him emotionally to write to them. He wants them to understand he wants to see them mature, to grow in their faith, right, and he wants them to do life uh, in that knowledge but to do it how with joy that's right with joy with joy how easy is it for you and I good morning how easy is it for you and I to live out our Christian life without joy Yes. When, when life starts piling on your head and on your heart, the deep hurts and the, and the struggles and the emotions, and in his case, actual literal fear of life, it can become overwhelming. I th remember back when we studied Ezekiel. Or no, not Ezekiel. It was in the Kings and the Prophets, and it was the, uh, um, Elijah, right? Remember Elijah had been on Mount Carmel and he went before the Baal worshipers and he had this great victory. But what followed that chapter? 
total depression. This guy went running because of Jezebel's coming after him and now in fear. This man that was a powerhouse of, of bravery and, and really, yes, yes. God had literally, and not only that, I think of the other stories in earlier places where hands are shriveled up, waters are parted. I mean, this man, he had seen the power of God at work through him. In, in ways that if you and I did, we'd be, we'd be set for life. We'd be on a high, right? And so he had been on Mount Carmel on this mountaintop experience, and God did these amazing things. And then what does he do? He has a woman say, I'm going to come after you. I'm going to kill you. And he runs and hightails it in fear. Why? Because at this point, his heart is heavy. He is feeling the pressure, right? He's, ex he's spent all his energy. What is the one thing, if you take this, not I'm not talking about physical expending of your, of your energies, but how do you emotionally or spiritually become spent? What are some things that happen that cause you to become exhausted of your, your spiritual strength and power? Fear? Okay, so if I focus upon yourself rather than on others. Yeah. Okay, now tell me this. If you don't want to get to that place that we just talked about, what do you think is necessary to, what is your multiple vitamin that you take daily so that these don't happen? Okay, for, first of all, it's a, it's a deliberate change of focus. It can be an attitude adjustment, right? Would you say the word attitude has come up this week in your homework? <laughs> an attitude adjustment is exactly where Paul takes us next in, in the writing, right? He says, now, have this mind in yourself. Because if you don't, joy is not going to come. Why? Because what happens to joy? What happens to your emotional joy if, you, if you're being bombarded on a regular basis and if you don't keep your focus in the right place it does it dries up so in order to stoke it in order to keep it filled to overflowing how do you go about doing that number one the mind change but is that all a, wa a, a personal intimate walk with Jesus now how do you go about it? give me the practicalities of that how do I have a walk with Jesus Absolutely. You have to be in the Word of God on a regular basis because if you stop eat, it's like you, what is it, the, the, there's an old adage about eating, um, you know, if you, if you go one week without eating, right, you're going to be weak, right? If you go one week even without the Word of God, what's going to happen to you spiritually? You're going to become weak, Right? Absolutely. And with Paul, with having done the historical work that we research that we have done, do you remember back when Paul was called into his faith on the on the road to Damascus and what God told him? And what did God tell him right from the beginning about his his work and his life in Christ? I am going to show you how much you shall suffer for me. But he also gave him some kind of really cool encouragements when he talked about where he would go and what he would do too, right? Uh, you're going to suffer, but I'm also going to exalt you to places. Yes. And Paul is an expert. He's an inspirational motivation. Yes. Joshua, you know, 
Yep. That's exactly. That's exactly. Yes, thank you. Oh, we're so happy to have you. I'm sorry you missed the very beginning. This this is a, a gentleman I met out in the out in the uh, the grounds the other day when we had our welcome for our new pastor. Would you like to introduce yourself real quick, just so the people. Yes. Woohoo! Yay! We're so happy. We are. And tell us your your name again. Abraham. Okay. So you can't forget that Abraham is among us. <laughs> we are so thankful to have you. <laughs> and I'm thrilled because for me it feels like oh a chaplain's in the room now I'm comfortable again. <laughs> you know my whole life as a military wife we always had the chaplain. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> there we go. I like that kind of student. It helps me out a lot. <laughs> okay, so now let's talk then about the occasion for writing again real quickly because I do think that as we are observing th this book on the whole, if we're trying, um, I had a conversation with, an, with one of our students. I'm walking with one of you guys uh, at this point in the evenings. We have a walking day that we meet together, mornings I should say. Um, but she was saying to me, I'm, I'm kind of confused about this thing about joy in the Lord. I don't see joy in chapter 2. Well, it is mentioned a couple of times, but she wasn't quite seeing the connection. When you're doing inductive Bible study, one of the we we saw simply through our objective observation in the beginning that joy is the major thing, and the reason it's major is because in although he gives some warnings and instructions, when he gives instructions, almost almost every one of the instructions are are bathed in the exhortation of. I want you to rejoice in it. And because he does that, what happens is he'll give an exhortation here to do this, and he'll say, rejoice in it. Then he comes over here and he says, gives this exhortation, and he says, now rejoice in this. And then he comes over here and he says about this subject in, of exhortation, now rejoice in it. So what's the common thread in all of those exhortations? Rejoice. So that's how you come to an objective observation about which one is it, because otherwise you would want to hang your hat on the doing part. He's not talking about the doing in this. He's talking about the motivation to the doing, right? He's saying, what is it that's going to allow you to be able to rejoice? And, he's, and he starts it in his prayer by saying uh, that their love will abound more and more, but it's through true knowledge and discernment. And so it's, he gives them the source of that. So we just talked about the fact that if you are going to rejoice regardless of the circumstance and if you're not going to deplete your energy and your strength to read to walk in this life joyfully doing the work that God has given you to do whatever it is you may think your work and your calling is 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 not that significant but trust me it's it's very powerful and very significant to God and it's certainly significant and powerful to those you're touching so whatever it is that you are doing you need to stay stoked up you need to stay empowered. You need to stay strengthened. And Paul says in all these things, I want you to rejoice always. Why? 
How many of you know people who claim to be Christians, but all they do is walk around with their head hung down between their knees, and they're moping all the time? There's absolutely no joy in the knowledge of who their God is. So he says to them in this this particular verse here in chapter 1, as he concludes all the circumstances, and he talks about coming back to them, and and he feels confident God wants him to come back to them to continue to help them. But why? For your progress and joy in the faith. Not just progress, but joy in it. He wants them to live life joyfully in Christ so that regardless of what's going on, they are a joyful people. Now, in chapter 2, it's very interesting. I picked up on something that is not necessarily the major thing, but I certainly think it's a major point to God's overall picture when you look at the bigger plan in God's word. When God called out the nation Israel to be his people, what was their designed purpose to be in the world? There you go. They were to be a light. Did, did you notice that comes up in this book? Where do you see it? Yes. He wants them to, to prove themselves. Now, Paul, uh, Craig and I were having a little conversation earlier about, remember, this book is not a doctrinal teaching on how you get saved. It's not about justification. So just make sure that you keep reemphasizing in your mind. This is a book about sanctification. It's about living out your faith and how you go about doing that. And when you are saved, you are not uh, nullified of responsibility in your relationship with God. I can't wait till we get to our covenant study. We're going to be doing that soon. Um, But when you study covenant, you come to understand that in covenant, there are responsibilities. It's not how you get into the 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 covenant with relationship to salvation with God because that's by grace right through faith you simply believe God Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness you simply believe to enter in but once you're in it there's an understanding about the principles that God shows to us in his word about what covenant relationships are about and there is a there there are responsibilities he says to us in this he says I want you to prove yourselves to be blameless and children. Prove that you are already blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. By living out in a way that is above reproach, you're proving that you are above reproach. Above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. That's what we are about. We are to be lights in the world. Now, how can you do that if you are not joyful? If you are walking through every hardship that God deals out or allows in your life, sometimes God does it. Sometimes God allows it. Either way, (laughs) to me to live is Christ, right? And if you're going to do so joyfully, this is what Paul seems to me is emphasizing in this book. This is the occasion for his writing. So let's talk about that. In chapter 2, 17 and 18, he does it again. As he's progressing through our, and we're going to get back and look, we're going to tear this apart so we can see all the pieces to it. But when he, as he moves through chapter 2, he segues from talking about them proving themselves so that they are these lights in the world. Then he gives them demonstrations, correct, examples of those who are, have done so well so that they will understand what he's talking about. 
And, and it's, he's not saying, I don't expect you to move a mountain, guys. I just expect you to do like Timothy has. I expect you to do like Epaphroditus. Are these hard things? Are these beyond your capabilities or abilities? No. But he segues uh, from that into the examples by really giving his own example. But in doing so, he shares his heart again as to what is motivating him to write this book. He says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. So why is he writing? What's, it, what's the occasion? He wants to share his joy with him. What does that mean? He's saying, I know I'm in prison. I get it. It's okay. I'm here for Christ. And guess what? God's word is being proclaimed. And I don't care whether it's in pretense or in truth. It's being proclaimed. And God is using me and my circumstance to further his kingdom work, right? So he's telling them, I am writing to you because I want you to understand. I understand where I'm at, but I'm joyful. And I want you to then do what? I urge you also what? You rejoice also in the same way. And he says, and then when you do that, share your joy with me. I want to hear about it. I want you to join me in this. I thought about, go. Uh, hey, Craig, would you mind opening up 1 John and finding that fellowship? There's a verse in there, I think it's 1-3, in 1 John 1-3, that I think says it, I, it restates this in another way. He's saying, I want you to join with me. We're going to talk about how at the beginning of chapter 2, this idea of, the, of unity together, of, be, of a oneness. But in 1 John, it says it this way. Okay, and does four go on and give anything more to that? Four says, uh, and these things we wrote There it is. I thought there was a joy in there somewhere. I thought, because it hit me. Yes, our joy, our joy. And there again is that unity thing, right, that union. And the, uh, the, this is the subject of covenant, the, the idea of two becoming one. And if you're happy, I'm happy. If you're sad, I'm going to be sad with you. Right? This, this, this co-existing, this co-laboring, this, this sharing together is what our relationship in Christ is all about. And I can tell you this, if you will join with me in this, and I urge you to join with me in this, he says, then our joy will be made complete. He, I love what he says here. How he, how he makes this nuanced move from the beginning of instruction, and, and some of it is actually... Very heavy doctrine. There's some really great chapter in the first two verses: doctrine, doctrine, doctrine on the subject of covenant. Right? Then in chapters uh, verses five to eleven of chapter two is all about who Christ is and what He did. This is all about the 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 realities of Christ coming in flesh and 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 what He did in doing that for us and the demonstration that is to us. I, this is just such a beautiful chapter. Chapter 2 is fantastic. All right, so the occasion for writing in 2.17 and 18 is basically his desire to share with them. I'm writing this out here for you. To share with them his personal joy. This is my, my way of saying it. Okay, so you can write it in your own words. His personal joy in serving Christ and them. 
Okay, that's in 2, 17 and 18. That's why he's writing. That's the occasion. We have already, now you layer that back upon what we saw back in chapter 1. He says in chapter 1, he is concerned about their progress in the faith and their joy in faith, right? So let's add that in here. His concern... For their progress and joy in the face. Faith. Progress and joy in the faith. Okay. So, I don't know if, you, if you're catching this, but again, w- w- if you can pick up on the, the subtleties in here where Paul is, sa- is basically sharing his heart and saying, this is why I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you not to just tell you that poor me, woe is me, I'm in jail. I might die, feel sorry for me, right? He's not doing that at all. He's saying, I want you to understand that whatever the circumstance is, joy is what is coming out of me because why? He has already said to them, it's because I I have a true knowledge of who Christ is in me, what he's doing in and through me, and what his plans are for me in the future. And and he keeps, did you notice the the little statement about until when? Do these things until the day of Christ Jesus. He keeps refocusing their attention. Set your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So that whatever your cross is that you are bearing, keep your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter. Because this is what is going to help you remain joyful as you're going through it, is keeping your eyes upon what's coming, right? what he has done, and what he is going to yet do for you. Those two things keep you happy. Happy in Jesus. Love it. Okay, now, um, chapter 1, I'm going to go back. Very, I'm just going to read these to you, but your, your, uh, your titles for each of your paragraphs in chapter 1, how are you going to live to Christ? He demonstrates it. He says in verses 1 to 8, continue, basically continue to participate in the gospel. He tells him, he's already said, you've already been doing so, and I want you to continue in this, right? And uh, I think in, uh, hold on a second, let me flip back here. Um, in, these, in verse 5, he says, in view of your participation in the gospel. In other words, he's saying, you already are, now just keep it up right? Continue in the gospel. God is personally engaged in your life. Hang in there. 9 to 11, be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. And 12 to 26, exalt Christ, whether by life or death. And 27 to 30, then stand firm and willingly suffer for Christ's sake. Now, we're going we're gonna to take this last section of 27 to, to 30 and, and tie it in together with where we're heading in chapter 2 because of one particular thing, and that is what happens in chapter 2, verse 1. What's the first word? Therefore. therefore. Now, if there's a therefore, what? What's it there there for, right? So you have to look back and say there's a connection here between what he just said and what he's now saying. So if you want to understand better what it, why he's saying what he's saying in verses 1 and 2, you have to look at that word therefore. And I'm hoping you're learning the discipline at this point of, of marking in a distinctive way those terms of conclusion. If you see a therefore, I use yellow because yellow, I use them for my therefores and my buts. And for this reasons and those kinds of terms, and I just yellow highlight them on my observation worksheet so that I can go back and say, oh, there's a therefore. So don't forget. to Because you can forget. You can get so 
you know, down into what's going on in verses 1 and 2 that you forget it's actually linked to what just came before it. So your disciplines of marking these key words uh, helps you to trigger, uh, aha, I got to go back and look at that moment, okay? And that's what, what we're all about is we're learning these disciplines of what is it that I need to pay attention to here. So uh, let's start, before we go into any of that, let's go back and just do some of the fundamentals that you did this week in your homework. What do we see in chapter 2 for keywords? You should have marked all your keywords and made beautiful long, long lists on all of them, right? <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> no, no lying in class. It's not nice. Okay, what are your key words in chapter 2? Okay, Christ himself, and we've already established that he is a book key word, so we know Jesus actually comes up again, and he comes up in a quite a profound way because we, have, we actually have an entire paragraph that's just designated to Christ alone, not to mention all the other references, right? Okay, so Jesus, since we're on that role, and that's a role, one person, Give me the list of the other names that come up in chapter 1. J Jesus and? I'm sorry, say it again. Well, okay. And Lord. Okay, give me the other names of the other people in this book. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Let's I didn't say it well. Father, yes. Okay, meaning God, the Father. Timothy. Thank you. <laughs> We've come to earth. Huh? Epaphroditus. Of all the words I can spell, that one I can spell. Why is that? I can't spell, you know, my own name. Anyway, okay, Epaphroditus and Timothy. There's another one. His name is not given, but we know that he speaks of himself in the pronoun I and me and Paul. Okay, so we have Paul. Okay, so that gives us our list of, of the people that are, that are significant in this particular chapter that come up as a subject of interest, right? So once you've made your list on these subjects, and what you need know, know to do next is to do what? Make a list on each one of them to see what it is that you can learn, how you can develop it. So your, the disciplines of your work is you, you go into each name and you say, okay, uh, concerning concerning, um, in this case, we'll start with Jesus. Jesus, who, why, where, what, when, how, right? You ask those interrogative questions just like a reporter, and you try to build a list bullet by bullet. And as you do so, remember to take directly from the text without changing the words as much as possible and make sure you put your street address at the end of it, right? All right, so you've got your your list on Jesus, then you do the same thing with Timothy, you do the same thing with Epaphroditus and with um, Paul, or with Timothy, Epaphroditus and Paul. Okay, so those are your key people. Now let's go back to key words. What are your key words in this chapter? I love it. Good girl. Attitude. Mind is used synonymously in this particular case with it, the attitude and the mind. Uh, he says, have this attitude or be of the same mind, okay? Rejoice. Rejoice, of course. Rejoice. Those are the easy ones, Susan. Give me the tougher ones, dear. <laughs> there are some other ones. Okay. 
There you go. Okay, so what you do with sel selfishness is it's the, it's the contrast and or you could say um, w without selfishness or something, I guess, right? So yes, yeah, so you're going interest. Um, and you said what else? Okay, empty conceit. So that would be your contrast. I'm not going to put that up there because I wouldn't mark that. Uh, although empty conceit, let me think. No, not quite the same thing. But how about this? How about this word? The word concern. Did you notice the word concern in there? When he talks about having concern for them, do you think that is the same as having an interest in them? Yeah. In this, in this particular chapter, yes, they're, they're used synonymously. So the word concern. Another, there's another one. If you think of it from those perspectives, that having concern for someone or having an interest in them, he also says what? Uh, let, hold on. How about this one? Um, whoops. Where is it? I didn't mark it. Oh, here it is. How about in verse 3? Don't do anything from selfishness. This is what Lois is talking about, which is the contrast to having concern. It would be the selfishness, rather, or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, do what? Regard others, right? So having a regard for them. Did anybody do word studies on any of those by chance? I know that wasn't in the homework, but okay. Regard, and, and when you look at that word, let me see if I can find mine real quick, because I did do that one, I think. Maybe I didn't. I did it, but I didn't, I didn't uh, put it on my sheets. But the idea, humility, uh, time. I did so many. <laughs> my problem is I do too many sometimes. But the idea of having regard has to, is again, has to do, it's concern, right? It's this deep um, desire for another person's needs or interests. It actually is defined directly in the text as Paul has said it, that he wants them to have an interest in others rather than uh, only in yourself, right? Okay, so interest, concern, regard. Um, obedience and obey. Okay, so those are the hows behind. Okay, good. Obedience and obeying. Okay. There's another one that's a motivator, which is how. Okay, go ahead, no, Martha. There, that's it. There you go. Good. And we did do word study on that at the end of the week. Kay had us actually look that one up. She wanted to make sure we picked up on the fact that humility and humble is a key word. What are you laughing about, Lisa? Yeah. <laughs> well, she doesn't want to share. She's having her own funny moment. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, now, there is a couple, there's a couple of uh, times when there are some words that are mentioned in here that are not repeated a lot, but they are really profound, and they tie right in with these ideas of having interest and having regard and doing so in humility. The idea of humility, remember when it spoke of Jesus humbly doing something, and what did he become? He took on flesh, but what did he become? A bond servant. Have we seen that one come up already? Absolutely. Paul himself identifies himself and Timothy and those who are with him writing to these believers at Philippi. He says, um, he calls himself a bondservant 
uh, of Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 2, we see Jesus becomes a bond servant, right? So you might want to put that as another key word. All right. Any others? Exaltation. Okay, exalt. Okay, and that would be, okay, it's not exactly a contrast. But it's a result of humbling yourself. What will happen? Glory to God. And then God will do what? Exalt you, right? Now, when we did our cross-references, where did you, do you remember any of the verses that talked about that? What is it that brings about exaltation? Is if you start with humility. Um, there was one of them. Let me see if I can find it. Because I thought it was really interesting the way um, this particular Proverbs gives a warning about those who would basically enter into a room and take the high seat, right? Um, in Proverbs 25, 6 and 7, do not claim honor in the presence of the king and do not stand in the place of great men. In other words, don't just walk in and assume you're, a, you're somebody, right? But he says it's better that it be said of you, come up here. Right? It's better if someone else acknowledges you and exalts you up here. For, and he says, come up here. Then for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. So in other words, don't, don't enter, enter to a room and assume you, you uh, own the position of authority or own the position of exaltation. It's better if, if Christ will exalt you, if God will exalt you. And we see this by demonstration in what Jesus did. Okay, very good. So, okay, starting with those key words, now let's go and let's try to build this, the insights on some of this up a little bit. We saw the word therefore in, in chapter 2, verse 1, right? And if there's a therefore, you need to go back. Now, what does that take you back to? Did, when you went back, back it up, where does the thought begin for that? Absolutely. Boy, is that huge. And actually, that ties together so well what he's saying in chapter 1, doesn't it? Wow. At, oh, that is good. That is very good. I think that would anybody disagree that you need any of those and all or all of those when you are in yourself in suffering? Yes. Oh, that's interesting. That's taking it to a deeper level. That's good. Right. Right. Well, and, and truly, I would, would you say that in the world that we're in today that we need to learn to try to be interested more in where people are coming from and hear them when they're speaking rather than immediately jump to a, a conclusion about what you think they're saying or what you think they feel? Categorizing, generalizing people, clumping them in, putting them all into one big pot, and also assuming that we understand what their life experiences are that took them to the place that they're at. Would it not be better if we were interested in their interests? There you go. 
you're right. What was it? Somebody had the best quote about listening. The best listeners, I heard it, it was Kelly, somebody that was being interviewed on TV the other day, and she was talking about her brother, I think. And he said, real listeners are not, they're not, um, what's the word, prepared or ready or thinking all the time about what the next question is going to be. They're just listening for the sake of hearing what you're saying. I thought that was really a good point. Absolutely. You're the light in the world for them. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So this is where you take the, the, the subject of what Paul is demonstrating here of the idea of really having a heart for then others, right? Yes, yeah. Without being sucked into agreeing with them about it or being on board with them about it, but simply understanding where they're coming from. I, th I think knowledge is, is your power because sometimes we have a lot of t uh, ministers who go into training on even other kinds of faith systems so that when they go into that part of the world and are teaching people there, they understand what they mean by the words that they're speaking. And if you understand where they're coming from, then you can have a good answer, which is biblically based, that says, yes, but God says this. And what I want you to understand is this is truth. This is why Paul starts in his prayer, and he says, through true knowledge and discernment, then you're going to be able to abound more and more. And if you don't have true knowledge, you're not going to have joy. And if you don't have joy, you're not going to be a light. And if you can't be a light, you can't reach the lives of people, right? Okay, so now what we're going to do then is we're going to go back to the therefore. And Martha, I think you took it back pretty well, back starting with the word for. But the for, again, is a term of conclusion, correct? So if you've marked your fours, that should have been marked nice, bright yellow color or whatever color you use. Back up to the first place where there's a, a, the beginning of a sentence. Where does that take you to then? Rather than verse 29, where do you back up to? 27. Okay. So 27 actually begins the thought. And remember, and you could have keyed in on that by simply looking at your paragraph divisions. Remember, when this was written, there were no paragraphs. There were no chapter divisions. It was just one continuous thought. The fact that we put chapter 2 where we put it, it, it is helpful for us to break these pieces down. But it can also sometimes be a danger because we lose the, the, the correct flow of thought and we don't connect all the dots. So look for your terms and conclusions and look for the beginning or the ending of full thoughts. And since chapter 2 begins with a therefore, you have to go back to the beginning of the thought. It starts in, in verse 25, or 27 rather, 27 only. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in, and then he goes on, what, does this sound familiar? 
one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So when he enters in chapter 2 and says, therefore, do you see those same thing in verse 2? Same love, united in spirit. Do you see it? So there's your connection. Absolutely. I mean, well, he says why, this is why I wanted to do the occasion for writing this morning is to see his motivation is for their joy and progress in the face. He wants them to grow spiritually, yes, absolutely. And if you don't grow spiritually in true knowledge, you aren't going to have anything that comes out of it that's appropriate. You're going to have your emotions, your presuppositions, your own way of thinking and viewing and perceiving the world based on all your own life experiences rather than on truth. God says, I am the truth. And if you will study his word, as it says in Proverbs, it's treasure that's there for you. And it's a treasure which will, will lead you to the true understanding of who God is and what the rest of this world is all about. You are not going to understand humanity and their motives and their thinking if you don't know God first. And then what you have to do, and what he's encouraging us to do, is take your true knowledge... And then have that, and then use discernment in how you live it out. You have to have knowledge first. If you X out the knowledge, if you stop being in God's word, if you stop studying God's word, if you stop doing what we're doing, so you guys are all getting an A plus, okay? But if you stop doing this, then what happens is your emotions start to draw you into your personal world, your own life experiences, and pretty soon you're living off of how you think and how you perceive and what you know, emotionally what has affected you or not. And, it, then, and your, your, your discernment becomes skewed. So God says if you want to keep your, your discernment in the right place so that you end up and land up, and so that he says then you will be, um, he says in chapter 2, um, innocent, you'll be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of, of a crooked and perverse generation. This world is going to skew your thinking. And if you rely on this world to help you come to, to truth factors, you're going to be in danger of living out God's uh, light and his truth wrongly. The gospel message is the truth. And so you need to know that first. All right, so he says, therefore, so you can back up now in case you haven't done so, make a note to yourself. At the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, just put an arrow back and say verses 27 to 30 in chapter 1 are what, what links this to your therefore. And that way you won't forget that later when you're reviewing things. Um, so he says, therefore, because of that. But I do think that Martha did hone in on something that was really profound. And that and is such a truth in this whole picture of what he's laid out for us because he himself has been in, is in suffering and he himself is, is in danger of lo losing his life. But he's, he reminds them, here's a truth factor. It has been granted uh, for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but to suffer for him. Both are going to be true. You are going to believe on him, and, that, and it's going to be to his glory, and it's going to be to your benefit, right? And you need to understand that that knowledge in him is your, is your foundation. And then he says, but also know this. This is another truth. Because you love him, what's going to come? Suffering. There's going to be some direct suffering in your life that has nothing to do with the natural affairs of life, although those can end up becoming 
um, what's the right word, a stumbling stone to you. You can fall into, you know, this thing happened to me and now I'm in despair because where was God and what did he do? And why didn't he and why does he allow this, right? You can go into that. But in this book specifically, he's speaking about Christian persecution. He's talking about the things that are going to come into our lives where, as in his case, you may be called and put on the, on the, on the front line of a, of a battle that where you have to stand for what's truth and what's right. And if you're called to die for your faith, are you willing to do so? And will you do so without grumbling through it? Will you do so joyfully, understanding that if this is the place God called you, then you're okay with that? Because it's, the cost is worth it. All right, so now here's what we're going to do next then, is we want to look then at these commands, because that's what you were to do um, on day three of your homework. Uh, she said, go back to 127 and go all the way through uh, chapter 2. I think she said verse 4. I'm not positive on that. I didn't write it down. Uh, but she says, make a list of the commands that you are given. I think I'll go right here. Commands. Okay, that, and this is on day three, and it was on page 29, right? Or in 30 also. She started in 29 and went to 30. Okay, now she said, list your commands that he is giving you. Therefore, because you've been called to both believe on him and to suffer for him, and because you have um, this... Uh, relationship with God, and he's gonna, we're going to talk about the, the doctrines about that after we lay out some of these commands. What is he asking us to do? What does it start with in 127? Okay, so that's in 127. So that's the first command that he gives to you. Now, again, here we see a, a, a time where you have to remind yourself we're looking at sanctification, not justification. He's saying this is because you are in Christ, because you are saved, this is what is expected of you. You are to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, of that calling which you have been called into, right? What does he say next? <laughs> okay, you're going to stand firm. Now, this is interesting. Now, for, do any of you guys outline your scriptures sometimes? Have anybody done structuring? Precept has this great little tool called structuring, which I am really, really bad at doing. But in this case, this is one of those sentences that's wonderful to structure because you see the, the, you see the, the clarity of the statement here a little bit better. He's talking about them standing firm. But and then he explains, he gives you like three points as to how or why, rather, but then he tells you the what. Standing firm in what? That's right, for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm for the faith of the gospel. And then he goes down and he says how? In one spirit. Right? How else? With one mind and... How striving together. 
I love that because so what you see then is by breaking it down in this manner, you get a better clarity as to what it is he's telling them to stand firm in. The standing firm is not in one mind, although you get to, it's, it's, it's that what you're aiming for, but you're standing firm in the faith of the gospel, okay? And he says, no, in no way then, in verse 28, do what? In no way be alarmed by who? By your opponents. Now, this is interesting, and this one, this one kind of struck my fancy a little bit, and I ended up on a little bit of a rabbit trail, and I'm going to share a, to just a tiny bit of it with you. Um, when we did our context setting for this book, we went back to the book of Acts, right? Hold on a second. Let me get my notes out here. If I can find them. Okay, we went back to, first of all, we started uh, back in Acts 51 AD, and we had asked ourselves the question, where did Paul begin this relationship with these people at Philippi, right? And so we saw in approximately 51 AD, Acts birthed the church at Philippi. So then you move to Acts 20, and you see him do a follow-up with them as well. You see Philippi mentioned again in Acts 20. Um, and according to the charts that I've looked at, you're talking approximately six years later, 56 A.D. And then it says now he's writing this letter to them, right? And, the, and from what everyone has figured out, smarter people than me, approximately 61, 62 A.D., right? And we're not trying to be precise on dates. We just want to get a ballpark figure. But basically, if he started in 51 A.D. and we're now at about 61 A.D., how many years have transpired? Ten years. Now, this is very interesting. If you think about the occasion for his writing, he's, he seems to have a concern for them, right? Or he wouldn't be writing, right? He's concerned. He has genuine concern for them, which is what he's writing to them about, that he wants them to have genuine concern, right, for other people. So he's sharing his, his joy with them because he wants them to also be joyful in all this because he understands that guess what's going to be coming their way? Hardships, persecution, suffering, distresses, all kinds of perils, correct? And he has certainly experienced his, his share of them. All right, so I went back and did just a little bit more because we didn't really fully develop. We looked at just what was going on in the book of Acts and how they were birthed, and we do definitely see things going on with the Jews chasing Paul from city to city in the book of Acts. For those of you who did Acts with me, you probably remember all that, right? Um, but in this particular book, this is called The Story of Christianity by Gusto L. Gonzalez, and it's just volume one, The Early Church to the Dawn of Reformation, and my good friend Daryl Howe gave this book set to me, I love it, years ago, back when he started with me when we were still teaching in my house at that time, but anyway, he gave this to me, I love this, this book set, because it gives you history, that's really cool. I just want to... Um, read a little bit of this to remind you of the historical setting that was going on for this church because this statement caught my my attention that don't be alarmed by your opponents and I'm thinking well you know what what exactly was going on for them so he, I'm going to read part of it with you the Greek is really terrifying, 
oh, that's good. Okay, so don't be terrified. And he says here, from its very beginnings, Christianity was no easy matter. The Lord from Christians, uh, whom Christians served, had died on the cross, condemned as a criminal. Soon thereafter, Stephen was stoned to death following uh, the witness of the council of the Jews. And then James was killed by King Agrippa's order. Ever since then and up to our own days, there have been those who have had to seal their witness with their blood. Right? Remember he talks about pouring, being poured out as a drink offering. And we know that he's talking about physically him possibly dying. This is the idea of pouring out blood. Um, yet the reasons for persecution and the manner in which it has been carried out have been varied. Although in the early decades of the of uh, the life of the church, there was a certain development in these matters. Now, here's what he goes into doing. He talks about the Jews' part in this persecution because who was the first persecutor of, against the Christian message that we have now, the gospel? The Jews. When Jesus came, it says he came to his own, and his own received him not. The first persecutors against the message that the Christ had come were the Jews. So in this book, he goes into some detail about that. Um, uh, the early Christians did not believe that they were following a new religion. They were Jews, and their main difference with the rest of Judaism was that they were convinced that the Messiah had come, right? And we, do you guys remember when we did the Ga Gal was it Galileo, or I can't remember his name, Gaius, maybe? Anyway, it was a proconsul and Paul was taken before him, and he had to, and he threw him out of court, and he says, this is a matter for you guys to decide, and so we talked about all that. Do you remember that? Okay, so he, that's what this, this historical record is talking about here. He's saying the real issue was an internal one amongst the Jews themselves, first and foremost, so that's where the first persecution really came for them. Um, then in, uh, later, Gentiles were invited to become children of Abraham by faith, since they could not be so by flesh. This invitation has made po was made possible because since the time of the prophets, Judaism had believed that through the advent of the Messiah, all nations would be brought to Zion. So this is where we see things like this, and also back in the book of Isaiah where he says, you'll be a light to the nations, right? And, um, it, well, anyway, I don't want to get lost. Okay, so the advent of the Messiah, all nations will be brought to Zion. For those early Christians, Judaism was not a rival religion to Christianity, but the same faith, even though those who followed it did not see or believe that the prophecies had been fulfilled. In other words, those who came into believing on Jesus, they saw, just as you and I do, that the old is fulfilled in the new. And we don't see us as a new religion. If you talk to people outside of Christianity, outside of faith, they will say, well, your, your Christian faith is a new faith. It only started in this era. And I'm going, no, it started with Genesis, <laughs> where he promised a Adam and Eve in the garden that there would be a seed to come. So for you and I, our understanding, and the Jews who came into faith in this time, their understanding that it wasn't a new thing, it was a fulfillment thing. But those who were re rejecting Jesus as Messiah, they vilified it, and they didn't see that, they, that we were a part of them at all. And that's what we saw and studied when we did the book of Acts, and we saw these legal uh, uh, counters that were going on. For those early Christians, um, okay, I already read that. Um, even though those who had followed it did not see it that way. From the point of view that those Jews who rejected Christianity, the situation was understood in a similar manner. Christianity was not a new religion, but a her her this is a hard word for me, heretical, her heretical. 
heretical. There we go. Thank you. See, there's my, there's my bad. I just don't do that well. Okay, sec, within Judaism. See, we talked about this, didn't we, Shirley? <laughs> As we have seen, first century Judaism was not a monolithic entity, but included various divergent sects and opinions. Therefore, when Christianity entered the scene, Jews saw it as simply another sect. Okay? Now, the attitude of those Jews toward Christianity is best understood by placing ourselves in their situation and seeing Christianity from their perspective. So here's what we were talking about earlier, is having the, their mind, understanding where they're coming from. And if you think about the writing of this book and wh what was going on for them politically and religiously in their world, there was a real power struggle going on and a struggle of, of identity between what the Jews perceived and what these things, these new things called Christian perceived as truth, right? Um, furthermore, many Jews believed that some biblical foundation, that the reason why they had lost their independence had, and, uh, and been made subjects of the empire was that the people had not been sufficiently faithful to the traditions of their ancestors. So this is interesting. They were not yet at a place, even in the days of Christ, uh, confessing that what got them exiled off the land, what got them underneath, per, first of all, Babylon, then Medo-Persian, then Greece, and now Rome. At this point in history, they're under the Roman Empire. They're still not confessing that that had anything to do with them sinning, but rather they hadn't properly and fully effectually exercised the laws. That's what they thought had got them where they are. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. No, no, no. Of course not. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just saying this is the when he when this statement says, "Don't be alarmed, don't be terrified by your opponents." This is what was going on politically in their world at that time. I just want to give you a setting and a feeling for the reality of what he's actually talking about versus where we are now, because we come, you know, two thousand years further down the road, and and we're Gentiles to boot. Uh, so we have this real dilemma in our brain of trying to attain enough biblical knowledge about Judaism. Uh, just to even get to an understanding of how Christ fulfilled certain things, that's hard enough for you and I. But these people were living in the time, and this is what I'm trying to draw you into, in the time when these transitions were taking place. How many of you guys, well, I'm not even going to ask that question. In our church, we're in the process of something new. We have a new pastor. How hard is it to take on a new pastor for some people? I mean, because it's a change. It's something new. People are resistant. So on, in this particular case, if you have legalistic Jews who believe that they need to rigidly follow the law, and by the way, we're at the place in history when this is written, there is no longer a temple. Well, no, 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 I take that back. This is just before the fall of the temple. But Christ has come. I had to correct myself, didn't I? Uh, Christ has come. He's claimed to be the fulfillment of, of the Old Testament prophets and prophecies of him. And, and these, these horrible people called Christians now are, are coming into the midst of this and stirring things up. And they're trying to pull people back to Judaism. And Christians are trying to pull people forward into this new thing. And so there's this tug of war. Do we stay in the old? Do we move into the new? 
right? That's why there's so many books written in, the, in our New Testament about this power struggle between the law and grace, all right? So th this is what this history record is here. For this reason, in most of the New Testament, it is Jews who persecute Christians. Very interesting. On the whole, that's who their major one was. But that wasn't the end of it, because after... Um, some of these major events were happening. Along the way, if you do some historical s research and study on the Roman Empire and what was going on around them at that time, there was a man who came up just shortly after the birthing of this church, by the way. His name, his name was um, Nero. <laughs> okay. Need I say any more, right? So Nero arrives, arises in just shortly. So, wow, don't be alarmed. Ha! <laughs> Was there a reason to be terrified? Absolutely. So he's just letting them, I think he's taking them to a reality check. He's saying, you've got these Jews who don't want us to move into the new, but you've also now, you're going to have Nero and people like him who are going to just hate Christians for whatever his personal reasons are. And he goes on and gives some good history back. And I'm not going to read it all because I don't want to take all of our time. But he talks about... Um, you know, the fire, for instance, that happened in Rome and how uh, Nero basically blamed all the Christians and then uh, some terrible things were happening. You know, people were being used as um, lighting sticks in his, in his, yeah, torches. He was wrapping them and lighting them on fire and using them as torches in his, uh, uh, what do you call them, the gardens, right? And so this is all historical record as to what he did. And he did it for political reasons, not religious reasons. He did it because uh, I think he had gotten to a place of insanity and of ex eccentric use of money and power. And the, when the, the fire started, he wanted to blame someone and he wanted to divert the attention from himself, so he blamed the Christians. And so... There you go. That's it. It's exactly it. So this book, if you find, if you are interested at all, this is a great book. You might be able to go online even and find it or find something similar to it. But to get a little bit more flavor to your understanding about what Paul is really talking about here, why he says, why in no way be alarmed by your opponents. His urging is, I want you to have joy in your Christian living. Because I want you to have true knowledge of, number one, what he has done for you and what's coming yet. That until that day of Christ Jesus, I want you to be blameless and pure and innocent in this world. I want you to be a light in the world. Keep your eyes on the, what's coming ahead. But don't only look to what's ahead, but remember what you already have. So there's where he, st so he gives that statement in, now where's my list? Here it is, sorry. So he gives this particular command to them. First, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, stand firm for the faith of the gospel, and in no way be alarmed by your opponents. And I'm going to put that word terrified. I like that. Thank you for that, Craig. That's a good one. Okay. All right. Now, um, now he goes into chapter 2. He opens up in chapter 2 talking to them about... Um, Let's go to chapter 2, verse 2, though, because he continues with commands after he, ma he makes one little verse in verse 1. We're going to come back to it, but I want to move forward in 2 to finish out the commands that he gives them. What does he tell them in 2? Verse 2. 
Okay, and he, then he says bye. Okay, we've got... Wow. And we have seen that one of the major things going on in here has to do with the gospel, right? The gospel or the word of life or the word is also a major subject in this book. Over and over and over, it all goes back to... What are you standing firm in? The faith of the gospel. Don't be alarmed by him. Make his joy complete. And he says, intend on one purpose. And what is the one purpose? He said it in chapter 1. Whether I die or whether I live, I do it to what? Live to Christ. And he said, and I don't care if it's in pretense or in truth. What? That the gospel be proclaimed or that Jesus be proclaimed. So again, we make joys, uh, Paul's uh, joy complete by being of the same mind, by maintaining the, the same love, by being united in spirit, intent on one purpose, and that purpose is the basically the to bring God glory. Now, when you when you look at chapter two, the opening of chapter two, which is primarily what we're focusing on today. Next week we're going to we're going to dig into the rest of this, but chapter two opens then in verse one. With very interesting points here. here, there's some doctrinal truths here. What is the subject of the doctrines going on in chapter 1? What subject is this? Susan, what subject is, what subject, what subject do we always talk about in this class? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to scare you. It, uh, there you go. It's either Jesus or covenant, and you got and you got it right. It's it, <laughs> it's both. <laughs> you are so good. I knew I could count on you, Susan. Thank you. I'm sorry I scared her. <laughs> she wasn't expecting me to do that. <laughs> okay, so um, let's look at the covenants then, and it's very interesting because he's talking about the again the the sameness, the sameness, the, the unitedness, and the idea of oneness. Right? What happen in, happens in covenant? Two become one, right? So in in the first ver in oops, chapter two, verse one, he says this if, right? What does that if mean, Craig? Do you have that by chance? The if on this? Um, uh, it's in chapter two, verse one. Okay, and when and in the one of the things I did notice, I learned a little bit more about Greek this this week when I was looking at this, is that often context rules for its interpretation. Right. There you go. And it is true is the ultimate conclusion. He's saying if. 
And if it's true, now here's, here's one of those times where I'm saying to you and I as laymen in, in scripture, we don't have to be Greek major scholars. If you read through the list, let's look at this list really quick. You tell me if you think it's true. What do you see in verse, what is the first thing that he says to us? If there is any encouragement... <laughs> in Christ. Exactly. And my question to, be, to you would be, is there? Is there encouragement in Christ? And when it speaks about in Christ, it's really saying being in Christ. That you are, because you are in Christ. Because Christ is in you. Because you are one together in this thing called covenant. Is there any encouragement in that for you? Think about the covenant uh, uh, principles of that two become one. And when two become one, what, is, what does that mean for you? What do you gain by being in Christ? And is that an encouragement to you? What do you gain? He will never leave you nor forsake you. And with, with your covenant partner, when your enemies or your opponents come up against you, what will your covenant partner do for you? They they will, he will stand firm with you, right? So it's interesting how he says just before, before that, he wants you to stand firm in the gospel because is there a mutual uh, responsibility in the principles of covenant that you stand for your covenant partner? You stand with them, you stand bes beside them, you stand up with them. It, and it doesn't matter. It's one of the reasons why God, when um, often in these Old Testament stories, sometimes you see God go in and wipe people out, and you're like, what did he do that for? They were being really horrible. Well, yeah, but what was the principle under which he made that decision? Covenant. There was a covenant with those people. So you, he was vindicating them or, or standing up for them, basically. He was defending them because they had legal rights right? Because they were in covenant with God. And when even when some of God's own people go against someone who God's in covenant with, God will stand up for the one who's the victim because that's what covenant does. Covenant says, I will defend you. So we see him, he says, stand firm for the faith of the gospel. This is a covenant protection or a covenant responsibility, right? I'm just going to put a little note on there. That's a covenant responsibility. And he says to them, stand firm in the faith. Don't be alarmed by your appoint opponents. And he says, because this, if it's true, and it is true, if there is any encouragement being in Christ, you know this, you have a covenant partner who is going to stand with you and for you, right? What else does he say? Any consolation of love? Huh. Is there? Did anybody do word studies on any of these by chance? I know we did humble at the end. I don't think she actually gave us a very many word studies, and there were so many things that we could have been looking up. Um, I found it interesting when I looked up, for, I looked up the word encouragement. Do you know what the, the word encouragement actually means? Comfort. <laughs> it's actually, it's almost like they switched these two words around backwards. Uh, yes, paraclesis. That's exactly right. Comfort. 
consolation, comfort, solace, that which affords comfort or refreshments. Thus, of the, the messianic salvation uh, is, is how they make the uh, application. Encouragement, comfort, consolation. So he says if there is any comfort about being in Christ, why? Because if you're in Christ, you're in covenant. And if you're in covenant, you have a covenant protector. You do not need to fear your opponents. And you need to stand firm on your part of it as well. He will stand firm for you because there is consolation in it. There is encouragement in it. There's consolation of his love. Now, consolation, did anybody look it up? I'm hoping some. Did you guys look up any of these words by chance? So I'll quit asking that question. Okay. Okay. Consol. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. I don't want to embarrass you. No, I'm just kidding. Consolation of love. <laughs> Now, this is interesting. It means comfort, and it means encouragement. So if there's any encouragement of love, it's like they could have switched these two words around. Is there any comfort in Christ, and is there any encouragement in love? They, in their translation, now, was it okay to translate it this way? Possibly, but actually a really better in translation would be to flip those two words into the other verses because when you look them up he says he says it's is there any encouragement and when he says it um this in the english greek lexicon he says this that which causes or constitutes the basis for consolation and encouragement so it's, it's both or either or and he says but it can actually be read like this if his love consoles you isn't that awesome? I liked that. I kind of want to write that one in my Bible. If his love consoles you, does his love console you? Does it give you encouragement? Does it comfort you? Okay, and the answer is yes. So do we need to know what the if meant? <laughs> does it not become self-explanatory if you just break down what's being said here? The if is not a question. The if is an emphatic statement. It's true. Is there any consolation? Yes. Um, the next one was any fellowship of the Spirit. Now, we didn't do it, but, you, you know, she, he asked us also to compare with um, Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, and that made me think about Ephesians 1, where it talks about... Uh, that when you receive Christ, he says he gives you his spirit as a seal, right? Until what? Until the day of Christ Jesus, right? That it's a seal of your salvation until the day of redemption. That's what it is. Until the day of redemption. So any fellowship of the spirit is there? I love it. Fellowship. I looked it up. Fellowship, association, community. Communion, joint participation, it's also the word intimacy. It means a close association of fellowship. And again, that brought me back to 1 John 1, 3, where he, where he talks about um, through whom you were called to have fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. First, 1 Corinthians 1, 9 and is another one that you can look at on that. Any fellowship of the Spirit? Yes. How about affection? How about compassion? So the answer is yes and yes and yes, right? So since these, this is true, and I would circle this whole verse and write covenant. 
This is covenant doctrine. And if you see, again, if your true knowledge is, is going to help you at all in any way, understanding covenant then will take you to a correct discernment of, of life situations. You'll be able to measure what's going on in your life and reason it through correctly to give a correct response, a godly response, because if you understand what covenant is, you have encouragement, and you have consolation, you have that fellowship, you have that affection, you have that compassion. God is with you. He's not against you. You are to stand firm for the gospel because it's your responsibility, and therefore you do not need to be alarmed or terrified by any of your opponents. That's why Paul sat in a prison cell thinking, I might die tomorrow, but I rejoice in this. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. I love digging this stuff out. It is just so exciting to see how God has woven this message together. So you open chapter 2 with a doctrinal statement about covenant and what you have in it that's going to encourage you. And then he says, now make my joy complete. I have joy in this knowledge because I have this knowledge. Don't you forget about it either. Don't let the circumstances of this world, the Jews who are coming against you, Rome who's coming against you, anyone who wants to put you to death for the, for the sake of the gospel, joy in it. Be happy that whether in pretense or in truth, it's being preached. Understand what you have and where you're going. Until the day of Christ Jesus. All right, now, let's go through very quickly. We've only got a couple of minutes. I want to try. Um, we were going to go through about Christ, so I think we're going to skip. Let's go to the themes, chapter themes. So in chapter 2, on the whole, when you look at what's going on here, we have in verses 1 to 4, what? What's, who, what, what is the basic message in 1 to 4? Okay, be, with humility of mind, being of the same mind. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. But then he gives you a commandment to do something, right? Do nothing from selfishness or, or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, do what? There's the command. The command follows all the things that are underneath it. These, everything else is a support to telling you why you're, you're going to do what he's telling you to do. And if he's trying to instruct you on godly living, if he is saying to you, live to Christ, rejoice in the Lord always, live to Christ, in these first few verses, he's saying, these are the things that are going to motivate you, and then this is what I want you to do. How are you going to do it? Because you're looking for the by. How do you do this? How do you live for Christ? How do, you, how do you rejoice in the Lord always? By regarding others as more important. Why? And then, he, then you go on with humility, with oneness, with unity, with um, this is how you do it. But the what you're doing is regarding others as more important. important. It is really tough sometimes to get to the heart of what, you know, is the, the to-do part of this. But in your instructions of how you're going to execute this, because that's what you're looking at, you're going to rejoice in the, in the Lord always. How? By doing something. 
not because of something, but by doing something. So we're looking for the buys. So I titled every one of my paragraphs with the first word by. By, and then I said how. Okay? So the first paragraph is by regarding others more important. Okay? And and then you can expound on that as subpoints to that later. And then in 511, then by doing what? It's much more clear here. There you go. Speak up, girl. You're you're right. <laughs> by having this the same attitude of or, or see, I just by having Christ's attitude to shorten it. I can't spell and think. And you can expound that. If you want to put more words in that, you can certainly do that by having the same mind as Christ or whatever. Having Christ's attitude. What was Christ's attitude? He, was a bond, he re resulted in him being a bondservant. What was the first step he took in order to become a bondservant? He humbled himself. Wow. And that's where we went into day five, and we, we spent a great deal of time looking at the subject of humility and what, how God views humility and how Christ... Yes. Yes. And he did that by humbling himself. Yes, yes. But he humbled himself under the mighty hand of God, even in the act of taking on flesh and being willing to do that. Okay, that's in 5 to 11. And then in 12 to 16, by doing what? Well, this one's very interesting because in 12 to 16, who is it all about? Who's the major subject in those verses? You, 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 right? You meaning the Philippians. So he's talking to them, the Philippians, the, the recipients of this letter. And he's saying about you, just as you have always. Now, I put a clock on that. Did you put your clock on there? Because it's a time, a reference point. And he says, so, so not only in my absence, but now, much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to work and to will out for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or dispute. So that's the how or the why behind everything. So that you will do what? So that is a term of conclusion. Mark it. Highlight it. So that you will do what? Aha. Prove yourselves. And then he goes, he kind of qualifies it. Being blameless and being innocent. But you're going to prove yourselves to be what? Children of God and a light that appears in the world. Yes. I like that. We talked about this earlier. Okay, go ahead and expound on this a little bit so well, they get it. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting because sometimes, you know, you can get into, into some slight nuances of things, but it does sometimes alter the way you perceive something that's said. It doesn't always, as we know, English doesn't always translate perfectly from Greek, and the thought behind it doesn't fully get conveyed. And sometimes in order to get the thought conveyed, you'd have to expound by a whole paragraph, you know, of, of explanation. So it's, 
kind of impossible. So what they do is they take words and they insert words like the word proving. It's very much, and I think, Abraham, it was you that said about um, James, relating it back to the subject of James. In James, it does the same thing where it makes this, this thing, which is this prove your, it, no, it says you are justified by your works. And in this statement, it says prove yourselves by um, being innocent and blameless, children of God, and so forth. But basically what you're proving yourself to be, proving meaning demonstrating that you are, not that you're working for it, not that you're attaining to it, because we're in sanctification, not justification. But now he's saying prove that you are, justify that you are, demonstrate that you are, right? Would, would that be a good way of saying that? Okay, so in... Okay, but because we can't do all that, we're going to just say use the words that they did in here by proving yourself. Children of God. Because if you, if you prove yourselves to be children of God, then you will be a light in the world. You will be innocent and, um, and blameless. You will be above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And so the reality is it will be revealed by the way you are, by what you are doing, correct? Okay, now in, we see in then uh, 17 and 18, we've talked about this shows us Paul's um, motivation and the occasion for writing in this way in this particular point he says I want you to rejoice in the Lord always by doing what uh-huh he says about himself he is being poured out as a drink offering right now we are I'm so mad we don't have time to go into that because that's really good picture there but he's telling you what he is and then he's inviting them to do something what is he telling them to do there you go very good so share in Paul's joy and if you wanted to go on a, you could explain what joy of what joy of what what's going on with him what is he doing he's he says he's doing something what He's pouring, he's being poured out as, so in, if you wanted to change that into English because we're not Jewish, what does it mean to pour, being, pouring himself out in that way? What is he doing with his life? He's giving it up. Is it not the same picture as what we just saw presented in uh, uh, 5 to 11 where Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant? dying even to the point of death on a cross what is Paul saying I'm like a drink offering being poured out upon the work and service of your life right and he says and I am rejoicing in this I want you to join with me in my joy basically of sacrificial living right who's he who is in what manner who is he sacrificing for first and foremost for Christ and secondarily for them for their faith, for their progress and joy in the faith. He wants them to join Paul. And you, I didn't, you don't have to put, but you could put in sacrificial living, maybe. Those are my words, and I just added that on as an extra so that I don't forget what it is that he's talking about there. Follow Paul's example. Joyfully pour your life out. That's what he's saying. You do it too. You be joyful and pour out your life. 19 to 24, I love this. Who's our major subject here? 
Easy. You got it. All of you get an A+. A plus. Timothy. Now, concerning Timothy, what is it that we see about him? How is his life demonst- a demonstration to us of what Paul is calling us into? Yes. Yeah. So, so it... So if, if, in fact, that's the demonstration that's being exalted by Paul, that this is a strength in, in Timothy's life, and it's why Paul is so freely wanting to send him back and wanting to use him in serving them, it's because he has genuine concern for them, right? So that's the command. I want you also to have genuine concern. Okay, and then the last one is 25 to 30, and our major subject of of the person in there is who? That's right, Epaphroditus, and concerning him, very interesting because he's demonstrating something that Paul is even doing. He has demonstrated something that Paul did. What is that? That's it. He is willing to risk his life for, this, for the sake of serving others. In his case, he wasn't on trial for Christian witness of the gospel itself, but rather in his work of coming, in this case with a gift, to support Paul. Somewhere along the line, apparently, he got sick. And when he got there, he almost died. And that action, though, of his sacrificially picking himself up, gathering his things together, getting this gift of love offering, taking a a treacherous journey which ended up uh, putting his life in peril, he says that simple action, that too is an act of, of basically giving your life up for Christ. It doesn't mean that you actually have your head on a chopping block. It can be something as simple as you just getting out there and working for God. And sometimes your life can be put in peril. Maybe you get sick or maybe you get in danger in some other fashion. He's giving a very simple explanation or a very simple demonstration that putting your life on the line for Christ does not always mean a literal imprisonment like Paul had. But it can be something else like in the case of Epaphroditus where he was simply serving. And maybe that endangered his life in some way. So in his case, he says, basically, by being willing To risk your life for others or in serving others, right? He said it was for serving him, but it could be for anyone, correct? And then I love it. He, he, he ends it by saying, hold men like this how? In high regard. Consider him high regard. Now, theme. We need our major theme. Yes. That is exactly right. And that's why I believe, and I was just about to go there, you start here with him. First you start with living to Christ in chapter 1. And then once you've, you've lived to Christ, now what are we going to do here? We're going to live for who? Live for others. Simple title. Have you got any other suggestions? What were your titles that you came up with? I mean, we could, 
I know I remember we had a lengthy list of all kinds of long sentences when we first started this, remember? But now we're at a point a point where we're ready to clean it up. And we're going to chop it down to just the nuts and bolts of exactly what's going on here. He says, I want you to live for others. And I pulled that out of verse uh, 4 of chapter 2. Live for others. And in this one, it was live for Christ in 121. Um. I think that is all we have time for. We are out of time, unfortunately. There was more homework that we did. Are there any other inputs or questions before we wrap it up?